Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I am the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, Mozambique's Islamist insurgents are ramping up their operations, carrying out increasingly daring attacks. What should Mozambique and its foreign partners do about this worsening security threat? And Chadian President Debbie briefly threatened to pull his troops from counterterrorism missions in West Africa. What are the implications for the region if Debbie falls through on his threats? Plus, we discuss how extremists are exploiting the COVID-19 outbreak in Sub-Saharan Africa. What are the key factors that will shape the counterterrorism landscape? So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. In late March, the Islamic insurgency in northern Mozambique attacked two district capitals in its most audacious operation since the group's emergence in October 2017. Major oil companies have asked Mozambique to send in more troops to guard their operations in the far north of the country. This after a surge of attacks by militants in the northern province of Cabo Delgado, home to one of the world's biggest gas finds in the past decade. What does the group's growing sophistication, planning and confidence portend for the resource-rich region? Joining me to discuss Mozambique and other issues is Bulama Bukarti, an analyst with the Tony Blair Institute and a PhD candidate at SOAS, Emilia Colombo, a CSIS senior associate, and Will Brown, a journalist with The Telegraph and also a CSIS senior associate. Emily, please bring us up to speed. What's happening in northern Mozambique? What do these attacks say about the group's capability? I'm particularly interested in how you think about these developments relative to the report that you did for us last year, Northern Mozambique at a Crossroads, Scenarios for Violence in Resource-Rich Cabo Delgado Province. Thanks, Judd. So for your listeners who maybe didn't read the paper or are a little fuzzy on the details. I'm sure they all read it. At least twice, especially <laughs> now that we're all sheltering in place. What better time? But, you know, out of a courtesy for those who may have slipped through the cracks. We published this paper in the fall, and we looked at violence in Cabo Delgado through the lens of insurgent capabilities and the government's strategy. And by tinkering with these variables, we developed four different scenarios for how violence could play out there. So I would say that the situation we see on the ground today is most similar to the first scenario we laid out in the paper, which is on page seven, for those of you following along or who want to look it up later, um, in which the militants become stronger while the government's primary line of effort continues to be focused on the military response. I think the attacks we've seen from this group uh, during the past month and a half teach us three things about them. First, their operational planning and execution has become much more sophisticated since the time we wrote and published the paper. Their attack on Mosimboa da Praia, it's a district capital within the province, It took place by land and by sea. They managed to hold the key access points into and out of the town uh, for about 24 hours. And when they did leave, it was because they wanted to, not because they were forced out or they couldn't do it any longer. And right after that, they moved on to another district capital of Kisanga, where you saw the same thing again, where they came in, they held town um, and then moved on. And since these major attacks at the end of March, we've seen a pretty constant operational tempo out of them. Secondly, we've seen an evolution in how they interact with civilians. 
They provided them food, they provided them money, they hung out, they chatted. And it's something that we see come up more and more in reporting. At the same time that we continue to see reports about atrocious violence against civilians. And it's a little unclear why there's this disparity, if it's a, a local leader making a decision in the heat of a moment, if it's a function of who they're interacting with, whether they be Mwani or a different ethnic group, whether they be Muslim or Christian, that's a little bit unclear still. Um, and finally, we see them, like they have been so conservative in sharing who they are and what they want these past three years. And finally, we have video. They're talking, they're sharing their goals, their vision. It's a huge step forward in their development as an organization and kind of fitting into the broader uh, extremist picture. Well, that's the part that I want to kind of follow up on, because Emily, you and I were scratching our heads as we watched this group for its first two years and why it did not communicate publicly in really any consistent fashion about its goals or who they are. And, and that's really changed, as you noted. The group released a video uh, after these attacks where they rejected the wealth of the world. They called for the implementation of Sharia. And so what I thought was interesting, and I'd love to hear Will's thoughts, is, as we've mentioned, it's a transition for a group that had previously rejected publicity, but also there was some clear indications about their connections to ISIS, uh, which had been another issue that had been debated uh, previous to some of these videos. And I guess, Will, you follow extremist trends in the Sahel. Uh, how do you think about this video and, and what might come next? Uh, well, thank you very much, Judd. Yes, the, the, the video is very concerning. And uh, what's going on in Mozambique is very worrying. As Amelia just laid out, hundreds of people are being killed by these uh, terrorists in appalling ways. And the government is really struggling to get a handle on it. So what do I think about the links to Islamic State? Well, from my experience pointing in Sahel, I think other allegiances which uh, African jihadist groups uh, have to Islamic State and Al-Qaeda in the Middle East, while they're undoubtedly um, very important, I think it's often good to take them with a grain of salt. I think jihadism in Africa is often a very local affair, and it's often about local grievances and local power struggles. I think the allegiances to international jihadist movements, at least in the Sahel uh, and in West Africa, are often more about a marketing exercise than a hard uh, operational tactical alliance. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's right. And that's usually sort of the bottom rung of the ladder in terms of the way African extremist groups operate in and network and coordinate with sort of groups such as, you know, Al-Qaeda or ISIS. The next level up tends to be some sort of skill sharing. And maybe we can point to some of the beheadings that the group has done as examples of that. But I think it's early days. And, and the point that you said, Will, about sort of African extremist agency, maybe not the phrase that we use often, but it, it is true that you do see these groups push back on the global networks. There tends to be a back and forth around sort of what they will and will not do. Bulama has been following Boko Haram, you know, very closely. And I think he knows this story of Shakao pushing back with ISIS about what he thinks the group should do and ultimately led to a split between ISIS and Abubakar Shakao's Boko Haram faction. But I guess there's two points that I, I'd love you to expand on, uh, Bulama. One would be just on this point about sort of the relationship between these groups and the networks. But then also, what we saw in Nigeria and what we are seeing in Mozambique are governments making mistakes, governments that are relying on repression, militaries that their morale has been sort of weakened by the failings on the battlefield. 
and this ultimately benefits the extremist group. So I'd like to hear if you think there are any lessons learned from Nigeria that we can apply to Mozambique. Thank you. Really appreciate the opportunity to be part of this. I agree with Will that these alliances are mostly not operational in nature. They are mostly rhetorical and they are advertorial in nature. You can't say there are operational links, especially between the ISIS Central and these groups. But what you do see is increased coordination and communication between the groups that have aligned themselves with ISIS. So there may not be operational links between the ISIS Central and individual groups in Africa, but what you see is increased coordination and communication between ISIS affiliates in Africa. So for example, you have the Islamic State West Africa province operating in the Lake Chad region. But then you have another ISIS affiliate in the Sahel, which is called ISIS in Greater Sahel. And what you see is working together and synergy between these groups in terms of their communication, but also in terms of their uh, coordinating their attacks activities. So I think that's a very important point to note. Speaking to your second question, yes, there are parallels, not only uh, when it comes to the way governments in Nigeria responded to Boko Haram initially, but also between the groups themselves. Ansaru Sunna, which is the group operating in Mozambique, is uh, locally called Al-Shabaab. But when you look at it, you would see that it looks more like Boko Haram textually, ideologically, and operationally. But both Boko Haram and Ansaru Sunna started without any form of large-scale conflict in the parts of the countries they started. And they started despite the governments being in place. Ideologically, Ansaru Sunna peddles the same kinds of narratives as Boko Haram. And I would want to note that actually their first video came in January of 2018, which was a Portuguese video. Portuguese is the official language of Mozambique for those who might not know. They are driven by local grievances and they align in terms of opposition to Western institutions and systems like democracy, secular education, elections, going to school and all that. So ideologically, they are very much similar, but also operationally, you see the kinds of deliberate targeting of innocent people. So I would conclude this by saying, my impression is that Ansaru Sunnah today is where Boko Haram was seven years ago. Unless something is done drastically, a decisive action is taken, you may end up with the scenario you saw in the lectured region or what you see in the Sahel today. Now I will go to government response. There are several issues one could mention, but I would just limit myself to three of them. The first is the need for a holistic approach. This is one of the things I think Mozambique could learn from Nigeria and others. Nigeria and other countries in the Lechad region and the Sahel made a mistake in the beginning to think that they can solve the problem with bullets and guns. And while security measures are critical, they can only contain the violence. A comprehensive package must go beyond securitized approach to deal with the ideology that these groups thrive on, address the grievances they exploit to recruit young people, and also build infrastructure so that people, communities may feel the presence of government and resist any effort to undermine the government. The second is the need to work with communities. A United Nations report published uh, in September of 2017 said 71% of its respondents who joined Boko Haram or Al-Shabaab voluntarily said their tipping point 
was human rights abuses by security agencies, arrest of relatives, killing of friends, or arbitrary detention led them to join the groups. So I think it's very important for the Mozambique military to avoid human rights abuses and respect the rule of law in their response to this group. Finally, there is great value in transnational collaborations. It was only after Nigeria enlisted the support of its neighbors, Chad, Cameroon, Niger, that it started recording successes against Boko Haram. Boko Haram was dislodged. Its fighters were pushed to the fringes of the lectern and all that. So I think Mozambique should collaborate with Tanzania, with the Democratic Republic of Congo, with Uganda in fighting this group. Balama, that was a great rundown. First of all, you set us up perfectly to talk about Emily's newest paper on our website, which talks about some of the ways the Mozambican government should be responding to the crisis in Cabo Delgado, and some of that will echo your points. It also sets us up for the second conversation that we're going to have, which is on Chad. And I should say that we're, we're doing a fairly heavy security-focused episode today, but uh, I think it's really important what's happening in Mozambique and what we're going to talk about now, Chad, to do a deep dive. And in Chad, there was a very serious attack in late March by Boko Haram on Chadian soldiers. At least 92 Chadian soldiers were killed. There's been some debates on whether historically the, the largest attack ever. And what it did is prompt President Debbie to say that no more Chadian soldiers will take part in any external military operations. Walking among the burned out shells of armored vehicles and trucks, President Idris Debi said he was sickened to lose so many men. We are going to review our whole arrangement, review all our arrangements in order to avoid what Boma has witnessed. Now, the government then walked that back and said, yes, we're going to still be involved in Nigeria and Mali and Sahel. But it it did, I think, really unsettle the landscape quite dramatically after this attack. And Will wrote a great article for Foreign Policy entitled, As the World is Distracted, Boko Haram Terrorists Strike a Key Western Ally. And so, Will, can you tell us what we know about the attack and, and what does it tell us about the readiness and the capacity of the Chadian military? So on March 23rd, Boko Haram jihadists, I think hundreds of them, surrounded a Chadian military base on the Boma Peninsula of the Lake Chad region. Now, it was an utterly devastating and a pretty complicated attack, and it left almost 100 Chadian soldiers dead. I think the government's latest kill count was 98, but it could be higher, we don't know. As you say, afterwards, Idris Debi said it was the deadliest attack the, the Chadian military had ever suffered. Obviously, that is a debatable point. But I think what this attack highlights and compounds really is, first, it's a pretty worrying development in Boko Haram's capabilities. Chad's army is widely considered to be the, the, the best fighting force in the region, and they've won major campaigns against Boko Haram in the past. And the jihadists managed to coordinate hundreds of fighters together under the soldiers' noses and, and overrun the base. First of all, that shows pretty uh, profound gaps in the, the Chadian military's intelligence gathering capabilities. And on top of this, it seems that the, the, the Chadian soldiers at the base didn't get any support from other troops, even though the attack lasted seven hours. Apart from just being an awful military loss, it came across as quite humiliating for Idris Debi. But really, I think what this attack comes together is what I tried to allude to in the piece. The attack highlights some pretty worrying trends right now for the Chadian regime. 
Idris Deby, uh, Chad's dictator, a strong man, has ruled Chad for, for three decades now. And his regime is, is not looking in a good way at all. He's got a small and powerful elite army, but, but this army is pretty desperately overstretched, fighting and maintaining a presence in the north, in the east, in the west and in the south. Debbie props his regime and his army up with a, a small amount of oil money. But this has basically evaporated with the coronavirus crisis for a while. So he's, he's facing this kind of military crisis. At the same time, he's got this economic crisis. Now, when I reported on this foreign policy last month, contacts uh, told me that the government was already struggling to pay military and civil servant salaries. So all in all, it looks pretty bleak for Debbie. People have been writing him off for the last 30 years uh, whenever a crisis happens. And he, he's a survivor and he always manages to prove them wrong. But now his regime is in a really uh, incredibly difficult position and he's lost a hell of a lot of men over this time. And I think that frustration maybe came out uh, when Jad, as you mentioned, he said he would be withdrawing all his troops, all Chadian troops from abroad and everything like this. And obviously he very quickly backstepped on that. But you can analyze that how you want. But it's, a, it's still pretty worrying for the general situations to help. Let me just distill two points from your remarks. One, that Chad has been an incredibly important force working in conjunction with the Nigerians uh, in Lake Chad, but also with respect to Mali and the Sahel. And if Debbie does pull back, I do think it will undercut the counterterrorism, counterextremism effort. But this other thing that you mentioned is where my head has been for a while now. Um, I think I mentioned it when we did an episode back in January. But I think the government is really fragile. And I agree with you that we should be very careful about foretelling Debbie's fall because he is a survivor. And it's not the first time that people have looked at his government and had questions about whether or not it would have staying power. But there's a combination of things here that are really undercutting Chad. One obviously is this military is just overstretched. Uh, There are problems on all of its borders. And then second is where the economy is. I mean, the fact that he has removed two finance ministers in as many years, he's now put his son in charge of the National Oil Company. And this was all before oil dropped below zero. It tells you that, you know, there is a lot of apprehension and anxiety within this government. Its key pillar still probably is the French, which has helped Debbie sort of manage and weather other challenges. And I think that commitment will remain there. But I I really do think it bears watching. And we need to be thinking through the policy implications of a weakened Chad. Moving to our main topic, all of our guests have been thinking a lot about COVID-19's effect on violent extremists in the region. Bulama penned a very thoughtful blog post on the Council on Foreign Relations. I keep sending it to people, including my team. Emily and Marielle Harris, who is on my team, published a commentary on the CSIS website, which I think is a really nice complement to Bulama's stuff. And of course, Will has been covering this in multiple outlets. So Bulama, if I didn't set you up with too much praise, can you tell us a little bit about how you're thinking about what COVID-19 means for jihadi groups in the region? Oh, thank you very much. In that Council on Foreign Relations piece, it was an attempt to predict what African jihadi groups could do in the context of a COVID confusion. And it was essentially to raise alarm and put governments on the guard on what they might see if there is a widespread COVID pandemic in Africa from these groups. First, we know that these groups would certainly take this opportunity because they are opportunistic. They are adept at exploiting confusions and chaos 
to further their ideological goals. And we have seen this elsewhere, but also in Africa. I mentioned Al-Shabaab in the beginning, and we know that Al-Shabaab emerged from the chaos and political vacuum or power vacuum in Somalia after decades of civil war. We also saw example of how they exploit opportunities. These groups exploit opportunities in Mali. There was a coup in Northern Mali in 2012. It was actually by secular groups, but it was hijacked by Ansaruddin, and they used that opportunity to declare the implementation of their version of the Sharia law in that territory. So these are two examples of African groups exploiting confusion. And we know that the confusion a widespread pandemic could bring in Africa would be unprecedented. It is not like one country, but it is something that would affect all the countries in, the, in Africa if we see anything near what we saw in Europe or in the U.S. Now, there are three ways in which these groups uh, would exploit COVID, COVID, and we have already seen evidence that they are doing that. First is ideologically. Ideologically, there are two ways in which they could exploit the crisis. The first is by peddling conspiracy theories about the origins of the virus, blaming the West, the Jews, and Zionists uh, for creating the virus. And that will be the case if the virus spreads in communities that are predominantly Muslim. But if Muslim-majority countries are saved from the wars of this virus, then these groups will peddle it with portray the, the, the virus as a punishment of God against his enemies. And Muslim-majority places were saved because they were favored by God. So in either case, they would exploit it ideologically. Operationally, they would exploit the need or the shift in attention COVID has brought. If there is a widespread outbreak in Africa, military and other government resources will have to pivot to deal with the virus, to contain the virus. And groups in that part of the world will take advantage of that and try to launch attacks, as we already have seen in, in some places, and continue to build the prototype-type states. Now, in terms of their strategy, they could use this opportunity to step up their humanitarian efforts. These groups, especially the Islamic State West Africa province, is engaged in a dangerous game of winning the hearts and minds of people. And Emily has spoken to this in the beginning when she was speaking about the change in Ansaru Sunnah's modus operandi. What we see in ISWAP, just like uh, what Emily said, is this attempt by the group to draw communities near by being good to the communities, by delivering good governance to the communities, if you like, in form of building infrastructure, providing medicine and all that. And so if there is a widespread pan pandemic, government resources may have to pivot to contain the virus, which will then create more humanitarian need in the areas affected by extremist violence. And these groups can then step up their efforts to build relationships with the community, uh, communities and win their heart. And that is very dangerous long-term. Yeah, there's a potential here for this to be a real uh, vicious cycle as governments become overwhelmed by responding to COVID-19. That creates openings for the jihadist group. And then we sort of keep going and going like this. And I, I fear that some of the advances 
the regional governments and, and the international partners have made could be reversed. Emily, what can you add to this to help us think about either on the extremist side, uh, how they could take advantage of COVID-19, or maybe elaborate a little more on the constraints that the governments face right now in terms of dealing with COVID-19 and the extremist threat? I think starting with the extremist, building a little bit on what Boluma just said, actually taking advantage of a piece that the Tony Blair Institute published earlier this year that showed looking even beyond Africa, how extremist groups will jump in and provide goods and services in times of crisis. And that includes groups in Africa. So while we may not have a huge body of evidence that this is happening now, I totally agree with Boluma. This is something that we should be keeping a close eye on because they do have an unusual opportunity, if they're willing to give it a shot, to step in and to really up their propaganda game, up their civilian outreach, provided that some certain factors are in place to allow them to do so. And they could take an advantage on the soft side in their greater, more extremist effort. I think states are in a very tough spot where you have competing priorities and which one do you prioritize? Do you continue your focus on, do you just sort of ignore what's going on with this pandemic, close your eyes and just help whoever is working on counter-extremist operations stay focused on that? Or do you tap into that reserve and bring them into your pandemic planning and control. I think either way, they're kind of gambling on the future and what is going to have the biggest impact on their future. Is it the pandemic? Is it the extremists? And once that decision is made, how do you redeploy your resources, your limited resources to manage the threat you perceive to be the greatest? It also brings up a question about the international partners too, right? How do we think about for example, France or the United States or the European Union. So, Will, France has said they're going to continue Operation Barkhane, even though four of their soldiers, at least four of their soldiers, have tested positive. The U.S. is continuing to carry out its strikes in Somalia without pause, although it's asked most of its contractors to come back to the base in Djibouti, not to live off campus, in part because of fears about the growing number of COVID cases in Djibouti. I'm, I'm curious what you're hearing and how long is this tenable to continue to have the international community doing this work while the caseload in Africa continues to rise and there'll be concerns about their own soldiers becoming infected? Well, I think these are some really, really interesting questions. And I might be a bit annoying to say that everything is moving so quickly right now that we don't really know yet. For example, you mentioned France. I I can't see France abandoning the Sahel anytime soon. They've invested too much in the region, kind of both economically and uh, militarily. uh, And they've lost quite a few lives there as well. I I don't think they're going to let up the pressure anytime soon. America is a more interesting example. I mean, who knows what's going on in the White House, right? If we look at what what has been reported over the last few months, America seems to be considering completely withdrawing its forces from, from West Africa. That's according to the New York Times reporting. Maybe the coronavirus is a good opportunity for that. I'm not sure. But what I think you might see is less invested foreign actors using the coronavirus as an excuse to withdraw their forces or step down their involvement. Uh, I think the virus gives a quite a nice excuse to your international partners to get out of these uh, messy conflicts in a respectable way. 
as Bulama and Amelia have alluded to, I think national governments are really going to uh, struggle to keep the pressure up on insurgencies as they need to focus ever more on the virus. The issue I'm really worried about right now is really how is the ongoing coronavirus pandemic going to affect the humanitarian responses in, in crisis zones? I mean, we've already seen a new polio outbreak in Niger because of a breakdown in vaccine programs. And I think as this virus uh, continues to spread through Africa's different hotspots, we're going to see a dramatic decline in humanitarian access. And of, of course, in the humanitarian situations, people get more and more sick. Yeah. You know, and your point about different actors will respond differently is, is spot on. So the UN said they're no longer going to do any rotations to their missions and that Units should stay in place, but the Irish actually uh, have decided to pull out from uh, Minusma, from Mali, actually in defiance of uh, Guterres' call. And I think we'll see more countries make those sort of individual decisions based on their own calculus about health risk and their commitment to these counterterrorism fights. I want to end, Emily, with the piece that you did with Marielle, because at the very end, you identify key factors that will shape the security landscape in the coming weeks. And it might be helpful for our listeners just to hear what those are and what are the things that African governments can do to avert a worst case scenario. Sure. So we identified in the piece uh, three factors that we thought were important to monitor to see how the security landscape really shakes out both during and immediately after this health crisis. First, we think it's important to keep an eye on state priorities. I, I kind of already alluded to this. The states have to make a choice. Are you going to focus on the pandemic? Are you going to focus on counter-extremism? And how are you going to make that choice? What resources will you deploy against each of these threats? And I think that's the first thing we should keep an eye on is how is that decision made? How does that impact extremist operations? If governments decide that countering extremism is too important to ignore and they maintain a robust operational tempo, well, then maybe we see fewer opportunities for extremists to expand. To the extent that governments are more closely monitoring borders and road traffic in light of shelter-in-place orders and lockdowns, we may see insurgents having a more difficult time accessing safe havens, accessing supply lines, and thereby uh, less able to conduct successful operations. But Conversely, we could see the government decide that they need more military resources dedicated to their COVID-19 response, and they start taking away money, personnel, equipment from those who are fighting extremists, and then we see the ensuing consequences of that. I just wanted to note that, I mean, the best thing for governments to do is to tread the fine line between the two, because both are mm -hmm. very deadly enemies, and you can't let one off because of the other. You can't abandon ex extremist violence because of COVID-19, neither could you do the other way around. So it's about aligning resources in the best way possible to, to fight from both fronts in the most effective way possible. That's a great point, Balama. I like, Emily, particularly this idea of, are there things that you're doing anyway in terms of surveillance and monitoring when it comes to COVID-19 and, and border closures that actually are going to help you? And how do you think about these dual use, dual purpose approaches? And I think maybe that's one way uh, to do that sort of needle threading. Another factor that we looked at that I think, again, kind of touches to the needle threading and striking that balance between pandemic response and extremism response is the extremist supply lines. Uh, can the insurgents still maintain access to critical resources such as food and money? And again, in a scenario where you have governments really cracking down on commerce, 
to the extent that insurgent groups or extremists are reliant on extortion of businesses, they'll see that source of funding dry up. To the extent that road traffic is restricted and these groups are dependent on taxing people who are walking by, driving by, we'll see that line of funding start to dry up. And then what does that mean for their operations and how they treat civilians? We've talked about the opportunity this provides these extremist groups to show kindness towards civilians, to provide them some rudimentary health care, food, what have you. But in a scenario where they find their own resources reduced, are we likely to see more violence towards civilians as sort of an under cutting of any progress towards hearts and minds. Finally, I think we really need to be mindful of the health status of fighters on both sides. Extremists are human, and while they are pretty isolated out in the hinterlands of a lot of these places, um, they do come into contact with civilians when they launch operations, when they go into town. Uh, they live in close quarters, all factors that could put them at greater risk of getting infected and thereby also putting a, a damper on any sort of operational planning. I do have another list of three items. I'm not really obsessed with the number three, but here we go. Another list of things that African governments and their partners could do to sort of tip the balance in the favor of greater stability. Um, I think first, this crisis provides the government with a great opportunity to enhance civilian outreach through non-military programs. To the extent the security environment allows it, provide greater services and governance to some of these historically neglected places and in so doing, undercut some of the extremists' leverage and key propaganda points. Another thing I think governments could try doing is to uplift religious leaders as a counterweight to extremists. We already see this happening in Somalia, where Muslim teachers and imams have sort of in conjunction with some government agencies are broadcasting out into the streets best practices in staying safe during a pandemic and tying it to Quranic teachings, again, undercutting some of the propaganda we hear from the extremists. And finally, I think African security forces and partners have the potential opportunity to seize on some insurgent mistakes to weaken their ranks. To the extent that some of these extremists may overshoot on the assumption that their opponent is absent, distracted, or weakened, we could see them undertake operations they're not really capable of taking and otherwise would not have tried. And a robust security response could really take advantage of that. And I think, too, it's worth considering if the insurgents themselves fall ill, how could the government incorporate the rising infection rates as part of a counter-narrative against extremist claims that this pandemic, this virus, is God's revenge on the West. Um, so I think those are some things that you already have the resources on the that's ground great. and could be an opportunity. No, I think that's great, Emily. Thank you. That's uh, uh, we, I think everyone's spoken in threes today. So uh, I think there's been a, a lot of really good information and analysis. So let me thank everyone uh, for joining us today, and we'll see you in two weeks. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org Africa. Thanks. Thanks.